Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Secure Talk. My name is Mark Schreiner, and I'll be your host for this episode of Secure Talk. Today, we're going to be talking with Andre Kirtland, who is a solution architect at NetSureit. He's on the professional services team there. Andre has a super impressive background. He has about 30 years experience in IT. And during that time, he's migrated at least a million people from one system to another. He frequently works with Microsoft on several initiatives, including technical white papers, training materials, and exam content. He's worked as a solution architect in the consulting division of NetSureit that has about a $30 million uh, managed service provider uh, revenue. Um, his favorite moment in his uh, illustrious career was the day he deleted every user account in, her, in his customer's directory by updating a PowerShell script when he was tired. Wow, that would be a terrible way to end the day. <laughs> so don't know if we want to dwell on that one too much, Andre, but before we go any farther, I actually just want to say we're going to talk to Andre about... Um, uh, some of some some of what you should use in the Microsoft security stack and what what's there, um, what's not there, and how best to use it. But before we get into that, let's uh, let's say hi to Andre. Andre, how are you today? I'm doing fine. Awesome. And I believe, I believe that you're in uh, Johannesburg. I am. So uh, pretty much the same altitude as uh, Denver. So high up, um, and it's summer and it's nice not. Yeah, so I mean, you're you're uh, I guess are how far below the equator are you? Um, we're fairly far below the equator. I think it's probably best part of a thousand miles between us and there, but um, uh, it's still you know warm enough at least. Um, we're we're um, I think climate-wise about the same as Texas. I'd say would be about yeah. the biggest similarity. But just just opposite seasons. Opposite seasons. Absolutely. Yeah, I I had one of the most enjoyable uh, business trips ever, where I did ten days in in South Africa. Started off in uh, Johannesburg, went to Durban, and then Cape Town. And over the weekend, uh, they they shipped me out to uh, to Sun City to I forget the name of the reserve out there. Uh, I think it was yeah. yeah. And I, re I I flew in from Hong Kong. I'd been living in Hong Kong. It was summer there. And I had the bright idea, stopped in Dubai, and I, I was going to wear shorts. Um, and I got off the plane, and it was wintertime. And as you said, you're at 5,000 feet, and I was freezing. The people who were picking from the company who were picking me up were bundled up in jackets, and they said, what the hell are you doing? And I said, I didn't know, man. I thought it was Africa. Like, from an American point of view, Africa is all hot and desert and, you know, Serengeti and all that. <laughs> Yeah, at least it, it gets nice and warm in the summertime. It but, does. Uh, I mean, you guys have amazing food there, seafood, beef, mm -hmm. wine. I, I would, I, it would be very bad for my diet to live there. Yeah, yeah, it's challenging. It's uh, <laughs> definitely the hard part of it. Like they say, you can't be a sissy in Africa. You've got to be a what? You can't be a sissy in Africa. No, it's made I, for tough no. guys. Uh, yeah, I, I'm sure. I, in fact, I didn't see any small... South Africans, <laughs> everybody, <laughs> everybody that I was meeting with were, uh, yeah, they, they, they made me look small. Anyway, hey, um, mm. I, I want to kick off the conversation to talk about something that 
seems that everybody in the world is talking about, and I don't want to be left out. And I and I saw that you recently posted something uh, related to Chat GPT. Um, you know, w- what are your thoughts? Well, this is obviously the start of something big. Um, you know, uh, AI has been in development for many, many, many years, decades even. Um, but I think what we're really seeing is that it's getting democratized now. It's uh, becoming available to the people. And when we say the people, that is also including the bad guys. Um, and you're increasingly starting to see um, attack vectors and attempts where um, various types of attackers are trying to use uh, ChatGPT to construct their their uh, attacks. So it ranges from people that are trying to use the programming capabilities that you can, uh, where you can generate scripts and code without knowing very much about it. Um, also obfuscating of um, threatening code. So they're taking a bit of bad code in a script or something and they're feeding it into ChatGPT and getting that to modify it in such a way that it's uh, not understandable by common or basic security scanners. And then even in social um, uh, attacks where um, uh, they're using this to construct uh, the, the sort of email messages that get sent in a phishing email so that uh, they just don't look the you don't get that same look and feel of the phishing e- messages each time that um, sometimes make people um, uh, be able to detect those attacks from when they're happening. So um, I think that we're at the early stages of this. ChatGPT itself, I think, is still relatively unsophisticated. I think there are more powerful AI tools that are living in labs and are not yet openly available on the internet. But we're going to see that with every month that's going to pass, um, you're going to get more and more of these capabilities getting out there. And um, it's going to start uh, changing the game uh, in many respects. Of course, at the back of this as well is um, uh, using AI type techniques. You're going to get that uh, a lot of the thinking work for an attack. So especially when somebody is busy exploring an environment, and is trying out various methods to try and bypass your security controls, um, where at the moment that might still require a semi-skilled, in air quotes, hacker to sit there and try and uh, control this attack, was often referred to as human uh, uh, human controlled ransomware or human controlled malware, um, that that will now be done by a very clever bot using uh, AI type techniques. And of course, at the back of the AI, it's basically machine learning. It's learning what it's doing. It's learning out of patterns. And um, if we're going to get that the the malware and uh, the stuff coming at us, the, the attack vectors, are going to get better at learning what works, what doesn't work, they're going to get better at bypassing our security controls faster and uh, uh, with less visibility. So it's going to make the defenders work a lot harder. I think that's a pretty balanced assessment. I mean, you, like you said, it's it's still pretty early days. I did notice that there are, there are seem to be two camps of uh, people who kind of agree with you, or maybe even slightly more positive, and then the naysayers who are like, oh well, look at all the mistakes that it's made. I mean, clearly this isn't going to work. Um, it's way early days, and what it's doing right now, in my opinion, is is pretty amazing. I um, <laughs> I had it draft an email to my wife telling her, expressing my affection for her and mm-hmm. asking her uh, permission to buy a Porsche. 
um, and it wrote this great email and, 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 uh, it, it was, I mean, I don't think I could have done any better. And then I asked it to convert it to Shakespearean English and uh -huh. it did that amazingly well as well. And so when it comes to the, you know, cybersecurity and the context of social engineering, uh, I mean, cause you know that some of the messages that we get are just kind of laughable right now. Right. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. if these, if these same bad guys or gals, um, just would use chat GPT, they would immediately probably get a higher conversion ratio because it's, it wouldn't be so obvious that it was just some person, a non-native English speaker, um, you know, just creating some kind of um, ridiculous message. So I, I'm totally agree with in agreement with you on that. Um, and I also, I mean, I, I don't know if you're a fan of the man, but uh, but he's from your country, Elon Musk. I mean, he, you know, he, uh -huh. he talks about AI as being an existential threat, threat excuse me, um, to humanity. He's, he's deeply concerned about it. Um, because he, I think also recognizes that it's still very, very early days. Absolutely. And, um, you know, what, one of the biggest threats along those lines of where you're talking about a, um, a social engineering attack, where it's pretending to be a person a lot more like you, um, we're very, very close to the point where we're going to get a lot of the phishing is going to start not just impersonating some generic person but it's going to start impersonating a person you know so um, you will receive an email that says it is coming from your boss your brother your wife um, and uh, it will be written in the style that that person usually communicates with you because it would have uh, um, studied communications that that person had sent you so they're not going to sign off the message in some way that's different from how they usually communicate um, and adding on to this, they will then uh, use, again, AI techniques to even impersonate voice messages, voice notes, um, and even video. So you could receive a Teams call from your boss saying, please authorize the following transaction that in every way impersonates your boss, but it's not. It's actually a bot sitting out there that is just very well trained to impersonate that person. Absolutely. I mean, Google announced some technology, as did Meta um, a little over a year ago. And I, I can't remember the technical term, but it's something like style maps, where they can map a particular style to each individual. And it's not just, like you said, the 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 way you write and the time you write, but well, actually the time, it's it's the uh, the behavioral analytics. So, you know, oh, the guy sends the messages every day at this time and and, th and this is the follow-up, et cetera. So they actually map out your personality to some degree. And again, that ability is just going to get stronger. Another one, maybe just even more simplistic, is, a, you know, the similar issue that um, people face with machine translation is they will go to Google Translate and, and enter some information that may be confidential either to themselves or to the company, et cetera. And and people some some people have the illusion that you can just go to a tool like ChatGPT, enter this you know personal information or somewhat yeah. confidential information, and then it's going to be all safe. And guess what? It's not. So that's a, that's another potential issue. Yeah. So no, we're in for interesting times. It's going to be a wild ride. Buckle yourself in. Yes, definitely. So hey, um, let's get started on the uh, mm. the Microsoft security stack. I mean, you know. Uh, up until about five, six years ago, uh, Microsoft and security weren't often spoke together, right? I mean, um, a lot of the security that was um, wrapped around Microsoft products was was brought or supplied by external vendors. Um, these days, the O365 and M365 offering is quite strong. Um, 
What what are you seeing in terms of your customers? In terms of what are the the, the things that it's most important for them to um, to be aware of, and then uh, deploy on the Microsoft security stack? Sure, sure. Yeah, you are correct that uh, Microsoft weren't traditionally seen as strong in security. I mean, these are the people that brought us Windows ninety five back in the day, but mm -hmm. uh, they obviously went through a long and hard journey where um, they uh, had some famous uh, security uh, disasters, you know, the code reds and the NIMDAs and <laughs> those sort of vulnerabilities in the uh, 2000 type era. Um, and uh, they obviously then very much amended their ways and started investing heavily in security. And it's been on an escalating graph, escalating scale ever since. Um, and in the last decade, one of the things that they've started doing is um, not just developing a lot of uh, cybersecurity capabilities, but uh, buying a lot of it. So um, they have purchased multiple uh, security dedicated uh, smaller startups, um, even larger companies in the last decade or so. Um, and they are now at the point where uh, they are um, uh, investing multiple billions a year, um, US dollars in um, uh, acquiring or building security tools, which has made them a very strong security player. So anybody who now says Microsoft is not a security company um, is probably just plain wrong. If you actually added it up, they are probably spending more on security development than um, many of the uh, more traditional dedicated security companies. And there's a lot of tools coming out of their doors. Now, um, one of the big work, a couple of big trends in terms of their uh, security tools is first of all what they're very good at is um, incorporating security intelligence because they are exposed all the time via all of their various um, applications and web estates everything ranging from uh, outlook.com to xbox to um, uh, uh, bing to <laughs> everything else and then of course all of their corporate customers they get to see a very, very large amount of web traffic and threats and people trying to attack them. And they're sitting and they're collecting that information. They're going out onto the dark web. They are looking for threats and they're correlating all of that information and putting it together, working with other security vendors. And they eventually just build up a very, very strong database of what are the threats that they need to fight. And then they incorporate that security intelligence into their tool sets. That's the first part of their secret source. Then when they develop these security tools, they, they have been very, very good at integrating them. And again, that's a big part of uh, secret of success of what they're bringing to the party. Because um, where you can go out and you can say, I have a best of breed strategy and I will buy the best um, XDR detection and response. I'll buy the best seam. I'll buy the best... Um, security for this or security for that um, and I will put them all together into my environment and then I will have to integrate them all and I will have to create the middleware to share information between all of those best of breed systems. What Microsoft's doing is they're saying when we push it out make sure that all of the components can talk to each other. So it's a bit like Lego you know let's ensure that all the Lego blocks click into each other don't have that uh, you have two parts that are just not compatible with each other. 
So if you go and look at the security estate, you're going to see that there's very little um, open space between the various parts of the security solution stack. Um, so across the uh, collaboration in user space, you've got in the Microsoft 365 type uh, area, you've got your Microsoft 365 Defender set of products that uh, are specifically protecting your end user devices, your collaboration services, things like your Office 365s, um, in your identity space, Defender for identity, um, and then they've got a whole set of other security tools again that uh, cover, for instance, in the Azure space, your uh, Microsoft Defender for cloud um, uh, and, and related tools. So, and all of these share information. They're all telling each other when they detect something, when they find a threat, when there's a new risk that they've been made aware of via the threat intelligence. And then they work together to go and kill a threat or to protect you against a risk. What's, yeah, uh, I, yeah, I was going to say, I, I think you hit the two of the key points um, that that I see is one is the the integration of all these different tools into, you know, a single platform and the their ability to communicate not just with each other, but to receive signal from from Microsoft Security Graph, which, you know, really gets mm -hmm. I, I can't remember the number, but it's something like billions of signals a day from all the different emails and and, um, you, you know, bad, bad IP addresses and um, suspicious activity. And it's just it's just an amazingly powerful platform. Um, let me ask you, in terms of your customers, when you go out, because pretty much all enterprise customers these days if if they're at scale, are using some type of Office 365, M365 product, right? So any some type of Microsoft product. Yeah. How many of them um, are fully aware of the built-in security tools and features into M365? Unfortunately, I think the proportion is relatively low. And that's something that I see as a common problem in a lot of the organizations when I first deal with it, is um, people own fantastic security capabilities, often that's included and covered in these uh, Microsoft product suites like Microsoft 365, E1, E5, E3, etc. Um, and they just don't know what's actually in there. And uh, they will blissfully go ahead and uh, run their environments at a lower level of security than what is possible. There's a lot of features that uh, you can switch on at uh, $0 extra cost that um, will immediately enhance your security by massive degrees. You know, so even just simple things like, uh, we're not even talking about switching on extra products, but things like enabling multi-factor authentication, MFA, um, which will immediately ensure that anybody trying to impersonate an identity because they managed to get hold of uh, your username and maybe got your password through some other compromise or by guessing it. Um, if they don't have your device that is uh, registered for your MFA, that attacker doesn't get in. And that's going to kill off the greatest proportion of potential identity theft uh, attacks. Things like conditional access. Again, that's built in. And uh, that allows you to go and set policy that says people connecting to me need to match certain requirements, uh, need to be secure when they're busy connecting to me. And you can do, well, MFA is one of the things you would implement with conditional access, but also 
I will require that you come in from a device that belongs to us, from a company device or a known device at least, which again, if your attacker is sitting um, in their basement somewhere on their computer trying to impersonate one of your users, they just don't get in because they don't have that device. You can go and say that person needs to be coming from a certain geography or a certain network. They need to have a device that is compliant. So they need to have malware, anti-malware on their device uh, that is up to date. They need to have a firewall enabled. They and various other requirements that you can go and define. And if they don't comply, they don't get in. Again, that's just a feature that's built into uh, your uh, Azure Active Directory. That's part of your Microsoft 365 suite. And then you start getting the, the especially when you get into the higher licensing levels, um, when people have got things like Microsoft 365 E5, that's got various security modules in it. So Microsoft Defender for endpoints, Microsoft Defender for identity, Microsoft Defender for Office 365, that all, again, have massively powerful security capabilities, and uh, but they'll only work if you switch them on. Yeah. Um, so one of the tools that we used to use is the secure score. Uh, does, micro, does the M365 secure score, is that still available? It's definitely available. Um, uh, it's being improved and expanded all the time. So um, again, with Microsoft's um, security intelligence, when they detect new threats, when they add capabilities into the products, they'll update the secure score to say, you know, here's a new thing you need to look out for. So the secure score basically is just sitting there comparing Microsoft's recommendations and best practices against what you have, and then giving that to you as a number. And that allows you to almost gamify your uh, security. So you can say, if, if I did every single thing Microsoft is recommending I do, I'll score 100, but based on what I actually have, I'm sitting on 30 or I'm sitting on 50. And you can then start using that to drive your improvement and say, every month I'm going to go back, I will review my secure score, and it always needs to be at least staying the same, but if possible, going up. And then it tells me what are the things that I could be doing, should be doing in order to improve my security. And that's a massively powerful uh, tool as part of your general optimization. It's like having an extra security consultant on staff doing a security review all the time. So I yeah. always recommend to my customers at least once a month, they need to go and sit down and go and review their secure score. What I liked about the recommendations is that you can organize them in terms of uh, least impact on user experienced mm -hmm. um, with greatest impact on your security posture. So for example, turning on MFA for your global admins, it's not going to affect 90% of the 95% of the people in the company, but it's going to have a huge impact on your security posture. And there are, you know, there's ways like that. So it helps you prioritize. And again, just to go back even further, it, to create awareness, you might not even know that there's like DLP tools that you can mm -hmm. you can activate and you can set up the policies for those. Do, do you do any of that work, by the way, helping kind of fine tune DLP? Yes, absolutely. So the whole field of uh, compliance um, has become very, very important because um, obviously as time has gone by, 
we're getting more and more rules and legislation uh, coming out in almost every country. Um, so um, things like GDPR in uh, Europe uh, a few years ago, um, various states in the US and various uh, authorities that have put out rules. So a lot of organizations now have a lot of uh, regulatory compliance that they need to be compliant to where they do have to uh, protect their data in certain ways, need to ensure the privacy of the information they've got. Um, so that's driving a lot of uh, effort in organizations to uh, not only improve their policies around uh, uh, controlling how they do things and manage their data, um, but also um, uh, uh, is uh, driving them to then say, well, now we need tools to help us enforce that policy. So um, a lot of the sort of capabilities that are there in Microsoft 365 that, again, people want to have switched on um, is data loss prevention, which you mentioned, DLP, which will go and evaluate things like emails coming in and out, um, documents that you're saving into SharePoint or Teams or OneDrive, and compare those against your policy and say, oh, hang on, um, this document uh, makes mention of super secret project alpha, which nobody outside the company is supposed to know about. Okay, that shouldn't be in an email going out the door. This document contains a whole lot of references to social security numbers. Uh, that's probably a privacy violation if we send that out, etc. And detect that and then apply the policy, block the transmission or just warn the person and say, are you sure you want to send this out? Relate no, I think that that that, that, that just just slowing people down for a second. I mean, some people might think it's a nuisance. I actually, mm. um, you know, the company that I, I spend most of my time consulting for, uh, Mimicu, uh, they turned on the uh, DLP features about a year ago. And it's awesome because it reminds you, oh, you know what? This is going to an external audience. Or, hey, maybe you want to uh, uh, label this as confidential. And then the, the the policies that are attached to that label will be enforced and follow that document. So even if I share it with somebody else, that that uh, policy will be carried forward no matter how many times that person forwards that document to somebody else. Yeah, absolutely. Even just something as simple as do not forward. I don't know how many times you've received an email where the top line in the message says, please, please, please do not forward this message. You know, this yeah. is for internal use only. And, you know, uh, two days later, that message is sitting somewhere with a competitor or <laughs> uh, uh, somewhere where it's not supposed to go. So switching on something like uh, the information protection capabilities, which then allows you to set a policy, just simply like do not forward. If you get the message, you can read it, you can do anything with it, you can't actually send it on to someone else. Or you can um, you can read it, but you can't save it to an external store. You can't go put it in your Dropbox or your memory stick or your Gmail account. So that uh, again, it can only remain within the data repositories that are under the control of the company. Those are very, very cap um, powerful capabilities. And again, Wait. Most oh, go ahead. Five orgs have that, but they don't necessarily yeah. switch it on. Yeah, no, that's that's a big issue, and we're going to come back, uh, you know, in in a bit here to how a, an organization like yours can go in and kind of um, facilitate the full deployment of of that security suite. Uh, but and 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 at the risk of sounding like a Microsoft commercial, I, <laughs> I, I do want to br bring up one of the things that uh, I I found was amazingly powerful 
is the whole autopilot Intune uh, connection and then, you know, just the deployment of, of both of them, but preferably oftentimes in an integrated fashion. Do you have much experience around that? Yeah, we do that quite often. Uh, for one of the reasons is um, when you're trying to secure an environment and the end user devices, the PCs uh, running Windows 10, Windows 11, are not properly configured, don't have all of the security lockdowns applied to them, are not consistently set up, then you start picking up security problems because you now have people installing software that's not supposed to be there. They um, making configuration changes that weaken security. So we usually recommend that uh, at the same time that you're securing your backend uh, communications collaboration suites, you should be uh, sorting out your uh, endpoints as well. And Microsoft obviously has a very comprehensive set of solutions there, which is what they refer to as endpoint management, um, where Intune is the main service to uh, that is used for configuration, um, not just of um, mobile devices, tablets, which was its traditional um, functionality. What a lot of people don't know is it's actually capable of managing um, full-on Windows PCs, Macs, even Linux machines. Um, and uh, this allows you to then go and say, this is what that device needs to look like. Here are the policies that need to apply to it. Here are, here's the software that needs to be installed on it. Here are the security controls that need to be enforced. And it then pushes all of that out from a central point over the internet. So even if the user is sitting in a remote office, is sitting at home in a work from home con condition, they get that configuration and the device is configured the way you need it to be. And then you mentioned autopilot. So let's say what we're doing is, again, user is perhaps sitting in a remote location. And what we do is when they need a new computer, we order it directly from the vendor. So somebody like a Lenovo or a Dell or a HP or whomever. Device gets delivered by courier to where that user is sitting. They take it out of the box. They connect it in, onto the internet comes up and asks them the first time, who are you? They type in their credentials, they authenticate to their Azure Active Directory account. And from that point on, the entire rest of the setup is fully automated using a combination of settings that we stored in the cloud and then into policies. And a few minutes later, they've got a fully configured device that's immediately configured with everything that we wanted, the way we wanted, all of the apps, and all of the security. So obviously, if you're doing that, your security is going to go way up. Yeah, and also it's much more efficient. I mean, I don't know how many companies that I've been these days, not so much in the States, but um, I, I spent about 20 years off and on in Asia. And basically every SME over there, you've got, you know, your small IT team. And the way to provision a new device is somebody fills out a form, it goes to the IT team, they procure the device. Um, and then they spend, you know, two or three hours uh, installing the, mm -hmm. the 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 software for that person's profile, and it's a very manual, tedious problem. And you, as you as you highlighted, anytime you do something manually, one, it takes time, but two, it creates an opportunity for some type of security issue. Um, and when you can just you know, somebody, you onboard somebody and you the supervisor requests their device based upon their job profile. Um, and within 24 to 48 hours, depending on the service, of course, every company's got different, you know, SLAs, but 
you know, within a couple of days, the device shows up at the person's location, whether it's at their home, at their office, whatever. Um, and as you said, they they get internet access, and immediately that uh, device is prov prov provisioned exactly how they need it to be in a matter of well, even if it takes a half hour, it's not somebody in the IT team taking two or three hours per device. I mean, you could be you could be doing a hundred devices simultaneously. So, to me, that's just a, a massive game changer. Absolutely, and in terms of recovering from issues. Now, now you don't necessarily ever spend time troubleshooting a computer because it's got some sort of problem with it. Even recovering from a security issue, you can just simply say, okay, push reset that machine and we wipe it and reconfigure it. And we just using our cloud services, we push back all the apps, all the configurations. And of course, our data is living out in the cloud in something like OneDrive or SharePoint. So um, we just become a lot less susceptible to uh, being uh, a disruption because of uh, operational or security issues. Yep. Hey, let me ask you one more uh, question on the technology side, because I mean, really, we're just scratching the surface here in terms of <laughs> Microsoft Security Suite. Um, and again, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to sound like a Microsoft commercial, but it's probably too late for that. Um, <laughs> one question I do have, though, is the um, Azure Sentinel. Um, where do you see it? Because it it does they Microsoft does position Sentinel as a SIM, uh, but it's you know it's not as robust as some of the other SIMs on the market. And even the word SIM can be controversial in terms of what does that actually cover, and is it just that just one component in a greater you know SOC type environment? But where what do you see as Sentinel's role in the let's just say right now and on through the end of 2023. Cool. No, gl glad you asked that. Um, so, yeah, we've got a lot of experience with Sentinel. Uh, we've used it uh, in many of our customers um, to to build out um, SOC and SIEM capabilities for them. And um, interestingly, you would say, you know, not maybe not as seen as, as robust as some of the traditional SIEM products, but uh, we've actually done several uh, implementations where we've uh, supplanted, replaced traditional uh, SIEM products, legacy, big name products. So Sentinel itself, um, as you said, it's a, um, a SIEM product, so um, security um, incident and event management. Um, but um, so like every SIEM, it has the function of it connects to monitored systems, whether that is a computer, a server, um, a firewall, or a cloud service like Office 365 or Azure. Um, and it pulls security events. Typically, it pulls logs in. And first of all, this gives you that all of your logs are stored somewhere in the middle, right? Which is already important because when you get a security compromise, often the first thing the attacker does, they go and wipe your logs, which just makes it a lot more difficult for you to figure out what happened. Um, so preserving your logs is important. But then once you've got those events stored centrally, you can start analyzing them and you can start correlating. So you can go do a search that says, show me a pattern. Um, I have a potential security compromise for user one. User one got a phishing email. So what else happened to the user one account? Where else did the user one account try to log on after that phishing event? Um, oh, user one was on PC one. What was PC one doing? 
OPC1 made a connection to server one. Okay, what else happened to server one? What else happened to other servers that server one communicated with, et cetera, et cetera. Trying to trace those transactions, um, which often form part of a single attack, gets difficult when you're having to look at security at one security system at a time and try and correlate these events across all of them. Much easier when they're all sitting in one place. So if you have a scene, it sort of allows you to start using this to be the, the air traffic control of your um, security incident management, because this is where there's one person sitting in a control tower seeing all the planes. Where are they going? Where are they coming from? What altitude are they at, etc. So where Sentinel will fit into a security environment uh, that, that's using the Microsoft stack, is I actually say to people that this becomes the hub of your security. It's sitting there in the middle. It's getting all the security signals from all the other systems that you're busy monitoring and managing. So all of the bits of the Microsoft security stack, so things like the Microsoft Defender and the Purview compliance stacks and the Azure Active Directory, um, but also on-premises things like your Active Directory domain services, your firewalls, your servers, uh, be they Windows servers, Linux servers, um, and it's pulling all of these security events from all of these places, collecting them, storing those logs, and then it starts analyzing and it starts correlating. And there's a lot of intelligence built into Sentinel where it can run detection rules based on, again, the Microsoft uh, threat intelligence. So Microsoft says, here's a particular threat out there. Let's put a detection into Sentinel that looks for that pattern. And it's not necessarily like an old style antivirus. Let's look for a string of code that indicates we have virus X, but look for patterns of behavior. Look for users that are doing certain types of connections and certain types of transactions that might indicate that there's a compromised device or a compromised user. And then when we find those uh, uh, possible uh, indicators of compromise, IOC, then let's respond to that. We can respond in the simplest form by pushing out an alert, telling an administrator, hey, go have a look at user one. There might be something funny going on of user one, but we can also then start doing things like automation. And this is where you start getting into SOAR. Okay, so security operations, automation and response, where you can say, when we find this particular pattern that indicates that a particular type of security um, incident has happened, a certain type of malware has compromised a system in our environment, then automatically start responding to it by isolating systems, disabling uh, components, uh, doing cleanups, um, setting off the air raid siren on the roof of the building, whatever else we need to do in order to respond to that uh, threat. And the nice thing is, if I'm using automation for these various steps of, of my responding, then it's not humans having to press those buttons. And that's important for two big reasons. The one is we're running out of humans. We're having a problem getting skilled security professionals who can actually do the sort of response work at, the, at an adequate level at a price point that most organizations can afford. And the automation can also respond a lot faster because it's going to respond seconds after it detected something 
it's not going to wait for somebody to read the email to say, here's a new trouble ticket that you need to follow up on. So that's where Sentinel becomes a very, very key part of your security stack. And I do recommend to anybody who wants to build a serious security solution stack that they put something like a Sentinel in the middle. I think that's a great explanation of Sentinel's capabilities and also some uh, super sound advice. Let's go to the business side for a second. Mm. Uh, I mean, how? Tell us a little bit about NetSurit and um, Shurit. Excuse me. <laughs> Thank you. I, I need my I need my copy this morning. Uh, and uh, tell tell us about like you know your 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 global footprint, where you're active, etc. Sure. So. Um, NetSureIt, uh, as a company, started in uh, South Africa late 1990s and um, was traditionally a managed services provider, um, so fixing people's broken stuff. Um, focused very much in the Microsoft uh, market space, um, so became a fairly good uh, niche player around that. Um, and as time went by, we um, started doing a lot more work in the enterprise space. Uh, we started picking up uh, uh, in the South African market, um, all of our big uh, banks uh, and some mining companies, and others. So starting to get exposed to those sort of organizations that have the tens of thousands of users and very high security requirements. Uh, also along the way, uh, got exposed a lot in the Middle East to some of the big oil companies, and other organizations there. And Working with these, we just got very, very good at uh, enterprise systems and uh, uh, especially security. And over time, that just became a big part of our offering is helping large orgs uh, build out um, good and secure systems. And learned along the way that it's very important to, in any solution, not just deploy the technology, but also do the people and process elements. So uh, you can't just put down the best security software in the world. You also have to show the people how to use it. You've got to do the training to help them change the behaviors that possibly lead to bad security. And you've got to put in the processes and the policies that uh, support what they're doing uh, so that they understand what they have to do, when they have to do it, how they have to do it. And um, so based on that, we now, um, apart from our operations in South Africa, we have also started operating in the US market. Um, so we do have uh, offices in uh, the New York City area. And um, we are um, increasingly uh, becoming a multi-continent company because we do believe that we've got um, value to add and uh, skills to provide uh, to people all over the world. I, I'm hoping that uh, eventually we will be securing people from Argentina to Tokyo. Awesome. Where are your technical subject matter experts located? Um, it, it is a mix. So um, obviously our uh, South African team is probably the core of the business at the moment because that's where we have the people that have probably over time had uh, uh, the most experience um, in this market. But uh, we are certainly uh, trying to uh, build up local teams in uh, the areas where we're operating. So uh, in our um, New York office, we're also uh, trying to build up a local team so that when uh, people need to deal with um, uh, a customer uh, or somebody, a customer wants to deal with us, 
that there's uh, local people that they can talk to and that can come out and do what needs to be done. So, um, awesome. yeah, eventually, hopefully, we will have strong teams all over. Okay. Um, when you go in and have initial conversation with a customer, how do you differentiate your service offering compared to other Microsoft partners? I mean, I, I took a look at your website. You, I think you guys have like 15 different uh, Microsoft partner credentials uh, and, and, and maybe five or six different specialties on top of that. So obviously you guys have have you know some uh, very high level of qualifications but you know what do you talk to or what do you talk to your customers about or prospective customers to kind of you know set the stage so they can see like hey you're not just another msp absolutely um i think first of all we do trade on the fact that uh, we have a very high degree of specialization and focus on the Microsoft space, as opposed to a lot of our peer organizations that um, have over time built up a, a an array of vendor allegiances and um, often will have mixed messaging um, uh, of, you know, let's, let's, maybe you can do it this way on Microsoft, but oh, you can also do it that way on uh, vendor B and another way on vendor C. Um, in our case, very, very focused on the, the Microsoft solution stack, which does uh, give us the ability of focus and not dissipating um, our attention and our capabilities um, across products. So I think that helps. Um, that's sort of become our niche. And uh, a lot of the organizations that uh, do like to deal with us is where the organizations have made a big investment in Microsoft and the Microsoft stack and are wanting somebody who can just do it really well. And obviously we've then built up very strong relationships within Microsoft, which then also helps us uh, to get very uh, high levels of support from uh, the product teams, et cetera. Um, we, for instance, uh, I just heard this week, we've been uh, uh, our managed uh, extended detection and response solution, MXDR uh, solution has been validated by Microsoft, which means that they basically approve of our MXDR service that we're delivering that at a level of uh, capability that uh, allows them to sort of endorse what we're doing in that space. So that helps. I think it also helps that uh, as a security um, uh, organization, as a MSSP, we also have strong uh, um, background in general managed services. So we don't just try and manage your security, but we've got that background to be able to say, well, let's have a look at how you're managing your workstations. Let's have a look at how you're managing your servers, um, your applications, your DevOps, so that um, we can introduce security, not just as this extra silo that sits to the side of your general IT operations, but that we ensure that you start doing serious security components inside of all of your IT operations. So when you're managing your endpoints, when you're managing your apps, your servers, your DevOps, etc. So again, I think that's uh, um, that's what we bring to the party, and that's what uh, makes us good at what we do. You know, one of the complications or complicated things when when trying to figure out what part of the secure security stack for Microsoft you should buy is the whole licensing discussion. And it, it from the outsider for the, for the somebody who's new to the ecosystem, 
it can seem kind of complicated because you have, I, I don't even remember how many different types of licenses and, you know, some are with Intune, some are there, it's an add-on and so on and so forth. Some Azure, you know, AIP and some are not and so on and so forth. Um, do you provide advice in terms of right-sizing the, the licensing uh, posture? Uh, yes, and it, it it is. I almost want to use the word unfortunately. Um, <laughs> one, once upon a time, technical people and security people could have a conversation with a customer and say, I am here to talk about technical topics. I won't talk to you about licensing because that's what salespeople do. And, um, you know, let's not uh, dirty our hands and, and talk about those uh, commercial aspects. But um, over time, of course, the functionality that you have available to you is absolutely determined by what are you licensed for. So it becomes a big determinant of your functionality is you need to have the right sort of licensing. So what we now do have to do is um, when we engage with a customer, we typically start a security engagement or a general operations engagement by assessing, by taking a good look at what the customer has um, in terms of technical, in terms of risks, in terms of infrastructure, but also, you know, where are they sitting licensing wise? Then we figure out, well, where do you want to go? What do, what do we want to achieve? What are the risks we want to try and engineer out? And we identify, well, what are your options from a licensing point of view to get to that point? So if we figure out um, you are going to need Microsoft Defender for endpoint, um, that's going to be the best match for your security requirements. Um, do you currently have licensing for it? If not, well, what are your options? And then we try and find the most cost-effective options and give that to the customers. And again, I think it's something that a lot of our customers appreciate is that we've learned to be honest when it comes to those sort of conversations. Uh, I always say to uh, people, not just customers, I have one goal when dealing with a customer. I want to be seen as their trusted advisor. That's the mm -hmm. only title I want. And you get to be trusted by being trustworthy. So mm -hmm. you need to give good, trustworthy advice, even if it's advice that goes against your own best interests. So don't go and advise the customer to buy the thing that's going to earn you the most money. Give them the advice that will allow them to get to where they want to be at as close to the price point as what they were planning to pay. So um, we typically, when engaging around security, um, we, as I said, we start off by assessing, by measuring, um, and then we will typically build a roadmap because we've also recognized that um, it is impossible to fully get a customer or get an environment if it has any sort of complexity, if it's got more than a few dozen users, it's going to take a long time to switch on every single piece of security capability that's available. So usually we're not saying this is what we're going to do over a week or two. We're saying this is what we're going to do over the next six months, maybe over the next year, maybe over a multi-year process. Um, and then we'll say this is what we'll do, month one, month two, month three, year one, year two, year three, and then map that to the licensing requirements. So what licensing will you need in this fiscal or in this quarter in order to support the functionality that you will need? Now, I, I like that, starting off with an assessment, figuring out what they have, what they need, 
and then focus on those requirements versus what's going to make the most money for you, the provider. Um, and sometimes you see when when uh, MSPs are also uh, the CSPs, so they're actually selling the licenses, there can be an inherent conflict of interest. I'm not saying that anybody goes the wrong direction, but it can, I, we're all human beings and it can sway yeah. our judgment in terms yeah, of what we recommend. Yeah, yeah. So, hey, I, last question for me, Andre. I mean, you know, you've been out in the in the industry for close to 30 years. Um, obviously, you are, you know, very much up to date in terms of the Microsoft security stack, and I'm sure on on many other issues as well. What do you do to keep, you know, current in terms of you know the work that you do? Um, I do have to invest, like my colleagues, a lot of time in research. Um, I normally uh, say to uh, new hires in our organization, uh, I warn them and I say, you are going to be reading like a medical researcher. So um, mm -hmm. I do spend a lot of time just trawling social media, the Twitter feeds, the LinkedIn's, the blogs, um, the announcement sites, reading and uh, whatever is announced. I do try and keep my hand on the uh, threat space as well to try and understand uh, what people are busy saying in the, the black hat side of uh, the fence so that um, I can understand what are the threats that I have to uh, uh, possibly face going forward. Um, and I'm also a big believer that uh, at the end of the day, you learn a lot more through your fingertips than through your eyes and ears. So um, there's a lot to be said for actually getting onto a keyboard and uh, doing some of the stuff. So occasionally I'll book out a, a few days and uh, go and do a bit of uh, uh, trying out some of the, the attacks that I've just read about or heard about. And, you know, go, go see what I can do. And uh, I learn a lot out of that. And that's how I have to keep up. But it, it consumes a lot of time. <laughs> that's That ultimately becomes the hobby. Excellent. That's some great advice. As long as you're not doing PowerShell commands when you're tired, okay? Try <laughs> <laughs> my best to, to avoid that. Yeah, bringing it back full circle. Well, hey, Andre, uh, Andre, I've really enjoyed this conversation. And yeah, again, when it comes to Microsoft security offering, I mean, we could spend a couple more hours on this, if not more. Uh, but uh, clearly, I, I, you know, you gave a very good overview and I think a very strong argument for, you know, anybody out there who's using M365 or O365 to dig into the security offering, get those tools enabled. You'll save a lot of money. You'll increase, you know, improve your security posture immediately. Uh, but again, thank you. Thank you for coming on Secure Talk, and I wish you and the rest of the NetSure team an amazing 2023. Thank you, Mark. Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance.